Hey, hey, this is Stacey Cradiville, and you're listening to the Cappuccino Mic Drop Podcast. Hey, hey, happy Monday. This is episode three of the Cap Mic Drop, and today we are talking to English teacher Dan Connolly. Dan, would you rather arrive late or leave early? Leave early, no question. I feel like um, there's an old sports analogy, like leave it all on the field. And I'm sorry to make a sports analogy for my people who are listening that aren't familiar with sports, but that analogy really resonates with me. I feel like, like, and I don't, I know that I'm not alone in this, but you know, the way we give everything every day, I have really nothing left (laughs) by the end of the day. And that's like when I need a, a, you know, a hard boundary to take care of myself in the morning, you know, getting in anytime I'm running late, you know, all I do is it just makes me anxious. (laughs) So that's not a benefit uh, for me. I really need to be, when I'm done, I'm like, that's it. Throw in the towel. I need to get, I need to create physical distance from this space to get my, get my head and body and spirit back in line, you know, aligned with uh, something outside of work. So that's a pretty easy question for me to answer. I know I struggle in the morning to get out the house with two toddlers and it's like really anxiety driving to like try and get here first thing in the morning, even with the late start, who knew we'd move the schedule a little bit later and I'm still anxious about being late in the morning. So thanks for uh, being on the same page with me on that one. So uh, tell us who you are and a little bit about what you're teaching and just let us get to know you. Yeah. So, um, well, I started teaching 15 or 16 years ago. I started out, um, you know, I've lived in many places throughout the country, but I say I grew up in Chicago because that's where I went to junior high and high school. And I wound up coming back at first generation college. Uh, I went to Western Illinois University, uh, paid my way through there. And that's where I I kind of got introduced to my love of learning. I had some really wonderful professors who challenged me to think about things in new ways, sort of like decentering things that were uncomfortable, but I found that they were wonderful growth opportunities for me. And that's where I kind of landed on the idea of becoming a teacher, which wasn't at all on my radar when I had gone to college. I really just went to college to postpone going into the workforce because um, my my dad, uh, you know, was single father, and I grew up with a single mother for many years too, you know, did not want me going to college. You know, he he wanted me to become a union electrician, uh, like my, you know, and work in the trades like like most people in my family did. I, and I understand where he was coming from. He was concerned with debt and that I would be putting myself into debt. And he was concerned with uh, my ability to, you know, take care of myself financially and and so, you know, I, he was coming from that place, but so it took some convincing, but it, it didn't take that much when I was, he knew I was paying for it myself. So, you know, I had some autonomy, you know, some autonomy to make that choice myself, but that's where I really started. You know, I think I started to think of the liberatory possibility of education and that's where I discovered that at Western. So that's what started me on my, that path 
if you want to call it that. That feels strange to call it a path, but that that at least created the exigence for me to pursue that. And then I moved back to Chicago and I started teaching on the South side of Chicago. And I think that like, like any good educational experience, it's a, it's ongoing. It's doesn't end. And it's a constant, like turning stones over learning new things. uh, And then it changes the trajectory of my life. So that's where I started. And I think that that's where I learned everything that would shape how I would approach the classroom even to this day. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I've come professionally. I think another pivotal moment for me was, and then there are many, so it's really hard to reduce it down to like any one that really captures a story. But I do know that about 10 years ago, I want to say, Brittany Redgate, who I taught with here uh, for many years, you know, I think we were kind of playing around with the idea of like, I feel like one of the biggest obstacles that I have with working with other humans is the sort of, well, that it's like compulsory and they don't feel like they have a choice to be here. And I feel like that's a really huge obstacle to like, to have something that feels like they're doing that feels meaningful to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think pulling from my experiences in Chicago, where the general you know, it was very, I had a large percentage of students that just simply weren't motivated by grades. So once that was taken away, and then once you, you, what's the feeling like I had a lot of students that just wouldn't show up. And I remember my first year teaching, that was a shock to me. And that was really hard. Um, And it was really deflating. And it caused me to think about a lot of things. But when it's, when I took away those two things, like I don't have people who are there because they feel like they have to be because they didn't feel like they had to be. Um, And I have a bunch of people in front of me that aren't motivated by grades. It was really scary and um, decentering, but also a really wonderful opportunity because then I I realized that I I needed to look to the curriculum to do all of that. I I couldn't rest on any sort of assumption that that people are going to be motivated all by the same thing. So so when I started working with Brittany, I think that we were like kind of exploring these conversations about what I do that actually denies young people a sense of agency in the classroom, like really turning over every stone. And we obviously came up with a lot of things, like <laughs> dozens and dozens of things that just basically communicated to a young person like, that they don't have any agency in this room. And I was like, all this symbolic ways like that's communicated to them. So what we decided, one of the many things we decided, but uh, one of them that was the scariest for me was deciding, and like I said, I don't know if this was eight years ago, nine, 10 years ago, but it was a while ago, I said, well, why don't we just on the first day, couple days, ask them to build their own syllabus, you know? Um, and if they even want to, and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And that was scary for me to let go of control. But what happened was something that kind of looking back on it, I'm not sure why it shocked me, but it kind of did. But uh, it also made me really sad is watching them construct a syllabus. They spent some classes took a 15 minutes. Some classes took, you know, two periods you know, anywhere from like 15 minutes to three periods. I don't think any class in, my, in the, all the years I've been doing that have taken longer than that. But, uh-huh. you know, what, where they spent the most amount of time was like, should we be able to eat food in class? 
and like, you know, can, and then, and then they would come in. Yeah. You could eat food, but it shouldn't smell bad. And all right, how do we decide if it smells bad? We'll all vote if it smells bad. That's like, I was just like, Oh no, like you are given free reign to construct a classroom that's meaningful to you to come to some sort of democratically arrive democratically at a consensus about what you want to explore where, how you want to spend your time and how our time was spent was like two things. Should we be able to listen to music and eat food? And, um, and I know a lot of folks have been in that same scenario, like trying to release the control a little bit and see where it goes. And then that's where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) That's where you end up. Right. Totally. And I, and, and so, so what I, what I started really, I think that was really pivotal for me because what I started to recognize was like, this is the work. Like, how do we create something meaningful together if we're just sort of perpetuating the these norms that we've internalized? Like, this is how this goes. You know, we're just like, like, come to class. This is how this goes. Teacher tells me what to do. And, and I've, I like look to this guy in front of me and he's the authority. And so that was where the opportunity was. And that became pretty, you know, kind of exciting about what to do curriculum wise. And that was like, I think the start of when I started to rethink what literacy meant and like, and what an English classroom is. And, and I think, well, just to go back to, I think it was about reframing English and reframing it in this work of literacy like the literacy work of seeing everything around me as a text and how multiple texts work in concert with one another to establish these sort of norms and uphold them invisibly. And so the, the term that, you know, that, that refers to is like understanding head, like how power operates hegemonically. And so, you know, the, one of the first texts that we explore is a, a speech about this is water and it's like how these, like these, he opens up with this anecdote about two fish swimming in the water. And there's a, another fish that's like, hey, how's the water, guys? And uh, and they're like, what's water? You know, the fish are like, I have no idea what water is, you know, and what the hell is he talking about? And um, and that that I see that sort of as the work that we do. And that's the work that I need to do every single day, like how do I see the water that I'm immersed in and how it's operating to uphold the certain structures that I operate within and, uh, and, and to first to see them and to become conscious of them and then to understand my function within them and and consider the extent to which I want to participate in them. You know, uh, that's the real work that I know that I find that, um, if I'm at all successful in the classroom, I should be asking myself really difficult questions just about every single day, things that I don't typically want to ask, and I don't necessarily want to explore the answers to, but, you know, questions like, how am I, how am I operating within this institution that's upholding larger structures like white supremacy culture? Uh, that's not a question that I don't think we've, uh, you know, been very comfortable as an institution asking ourselves and looking at that inherited history. And it's certainly out, you know, my experience as a, you know, as a white person to ask that question and to explore the, my function within it and how I uphold that. 
I had a student, she came up with such a, a great analogy for looking at like, looking at what we're talking about, like inherited norms. And, and, you know, there are a few different quotes and thinkers that I pull from, but one of them is uh, Michel Foucault, a French thinker and writer and theorist. Uh, and, you know, he challenges me a lot to rethink the way that power operates. You know, one of his quotes is, you know, we need to cease once and for all to think of power in its negative forms and not negative like bad, but negative as though it takes something away. Like he uses examples like power doesn't censor and power doesn't repress power. Doesn't, um, you know, hide things or power doesn't, you know, you know, like we think of power oftentimes operating in these ways as though it's repressive and it's hiding something from us, which centralizes it outside of ourselves and makes it, very much in the, um, it, it, I think it, it, uh, it helps us, it makes us think about power in the very much like the, how would, what would be a good analogy? Like a, a movie where there's a clear antagonist and protagonist. So it's like, it's that antagonist that's overtly repressive, but he challenges us to think of power as, as though it's productive. It's a production and reproduction of truths. And that real power is the ways in which all of us are consistently reproducing texts that reinforce this idea that this is what reality is, or this is what a truth is. And to that, I had one, you know, a student gave this analogy, and I thought it was just so powerful that I've been using it just about every day. And I always turned to her, I say, I promise you, this is the last time I use your analogy. And then, of course, it comes up again the next day, because just too perfect. But she was saying, you know, she said, I was thinking about it today, and something that's relatively benign, but looking around the classroom, everybody's wearing shoes. And I said, okay, go where, go with that. Cause I, I had a feeling I knew where she was going and she's like, it produces this idea and reinforces this ideology that we have to wear shoes. But if we think of that ideology as operating outside of ourselves, you know, like we've, we tend to think about power. It's like, there's some external force telling me that I have to put, put shoes on, but that's not what's happening that ideology is operating in my mind without me being aware of it. Every time I put shoes on in the morning and there are 35 of us reproducing that truth, which creates this idea of normalcy and what is normal. And then the irony is that it, even though everybody's participating in that reproduction, because everyone's participating in the reproduction, it becomes invisible and we're not paying attention anymore. And that's, that is a really great analogy, (laughs) you know, and that's when, and that's when we're not, and then it it has this sort of control and power over us that we're not even aware of. And we're part of the reproduction of that truth that might, might actually not, not that it's not harmful that we're wearing shoes, but the unconsciousness of that reproduction can be considered harmful. So the next day, you know, when they walked in, I didn't have my shoes on. I made sure that, you know, during fifth period, I wouldn't have my shoes on. And, and, you know, and just asking them, like, what was the first thing that you noticed? Oh, Connolly didn't have shoes on. And because of my otherness, because I existed outside of that established norm of wearing shoes, even though everybody's wearing shoes, 
what becomes visible is my otherness, right? That I'm not wearing shoes. But I think the reframe in that is why we want to protect in the people's ability to, you know, um, to posed alternative perspectives, because once, like I asked that student who been, has been using that analogy, what was the first thing that one has to consider when they see me without shoes is, why do I have shoes on? It like forces that consciousness. And so I think that the course and the curriculum oftentimes is about just looking at everything as a text. Everything around us creates this water in our fishbowl and to become visible of it not so that different choices are made by any means. I, I don't, I could not care less about whatever choice it is. As long as I do have an ethical compass that I do believe that if we choose something out of our own freedom, that is, you know, denies another person their ability to have that freedom, then that is unethical. And that's where I will draw lines in the classroom. But otherwise I'm not concerned with the choice that they arrive at. I'm more concerned with the unconsciousness of the choices that they believe they're making and not making unconsciously. You know, right. another example is I ask them just about every two weeks, I say, why are you here in class? And it's always the same. The first answer is because I have to be, you know, and then we just unpack that basically every we check in, you know, what, what ideology is operating and what, it, what of it is mine and what is it is that I've inherited and what is it that's been sort of normalized throughout the culture and so that's, I guess, yeah, I think that that's really important for me in my personal life and then my professional life working with young people is that uh, is understand how power operates hegemonically. You know, it's just the normalization. And then that relates directly to, I think, a lot of other larger structures. And that's where we are now in the curriculum. It's like that next step is not just talking about shoes. Well, that's an important analogy. That's exactly what it is. It's an analogy, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, uh, we look at the normalization of whiteness and how we center that and the normalization of capitalist ideology and how we center that, the normalization of hetero, heterosexuality and heterosexual relationship uh, models and uh, maleness and, and masculinity and how we, once we center them, they become invisible. And so raising consciousness about making that visible. So that's a literacy thing that I was talking about earlier. I, I think that that's was important to me to reframe English, not to sort of disrupt my own inherited assumptions about what an English classroom is supposed to be. And the reframe for me was it's about literacy, critical literacy. So that's awesome. That's so deep. <laughs> and I know <laughs> I actually um, I actually reached out to some of your students to get some feedback from them about like your class and what they're learning oh, and things no. like that. And it ties right into everything that you're saying, like your students are getting it. <laughs> so one thing that I want to know is this is IB English, right? Yeah. I'm assuming you taught other English classes before you taught IB and what was different or the same about how you go about getting students to think about these things in new ways. I think it goes back to the understanding that like power is fluid and when I say power, I mean, whatever is not been normalized, it's fluid and it's contextual and it's changing all the time. So all, all that changes, there is really no difference. Um, uh, when I was teaching freshmen, when I was teaching sophomores, I taught sophomores for the majority of my career here at CAP uh, and even at San Mateo High School. 
and even back in Chicago. And, the, you know, at every level, it's the same. Um, the only the only thing that I have to be become sort of, for lack of better words, the authority on is like what norms are operating here. Like I have to become a little bit more. I have to be at the forefront of sort of that of like what is operating here, what, you know, sort of norms are are they are being brought into this space, you know, and the one of the differences is that I think I know I with my IB students. It's not hard. It's not hard to to sort of poke at, let's say, what would be a good example like capitalist ideology and and understanding those inherited norms. But when we start talking about how like the normalization of uh, sort of affluent values and middle-class values and how those sort of have been centered, you know, because of the, you know, demographics of people coming in and different classes, those norms are, are going to be slightly different. And so, the only thing that changes is how much time we take, like investigating, you know, investigating and interrogating these, Mm -hmm. these, uh, these norms, because it depends on the age. It depends on it. Just like, it depends on all of those things. Another good example is with my seniors. It's such a beautiful analogy when they come in thinking that they have inherited some power dynamic over freshmen. Right. And that's a beautiful (laughs) analogy because it, it really, it's analogous for just about everything else where we focus on for the rest, you know, that we look at for the rest of the school year. Um, I obviously wouldn't, I don't take that much of that approach with freshmen or with sophomores. With freshmen, I would, um, but usually, you know, they're at the bottom of that social ladder. So there's a tendency to be, you know, for that to be a little bit more what incendiary like it's just inflammatory like they get upset and I and it's like and then I feel like I'm stoking the flames and I'm like okay I don't know how far I want they're very acutely aware of how they're at the bottom of this social ladder I don't know if Mm -hmm. we need to raise you know that this isn't invisible to them let's just put it that they're very much aware so that's really all that matters like that's the only way that it changes the literacy itself does not change it's just what, where do we want to invest that time? Because their age is different. Uh, their social situations are different, but otherwise the, that literacy is still as important. If not more, you know, I wouldn't say I'm not going to make a hierarchy. I, it's just as important. And it was when I was teaching at all the other levels. Awesome. Know? Okay. So I have a, a quote from a student here. Uh oh. They said, I really like, okay. I asked what does Connolly do that you wish other teachers would do? That was the question. And one student said, actually multiple students, but I'm going to quote one student in particular that said, I really like that he tries to give the students as much power as possible. For example, we do not have to ask to use the bathroom, do not have to ask to leave the classroom, do not need to ask to pick up a phone call, et cetera. There are many things that Connolly does that makes us feel human and in control of our lives. And I am very thankful for that. Um. So... I love that. And kudos to you for making your students feel so in control of things in the classroom. What has been your experience? Like, have I know this year in particular has been especially wild with behavior and like, we're all just yeah. coming off of all this trauma. So yeah. we're still experiencing trauma. So 
How has that been different or the same this year in particular? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's been any different, but I think that that comes from the student body, like the, who I'm working with. I think when I'm working with seniors, that is something that's a little different. My work will look a little different, but it's not dramatically different. You know, I do think that, you know, this idea of use the bathroom when you need to, obviously, you know, we're not going to all storm out, but I, or you take a phone call if you need to. What I'm trying to communicate is are two things is autonomy over self and an understanding of individual autonomy impacts community. And so being a human is about negotiating those two things. And that, whether it's post-pandemic whether it's seniors, whether it's freshmen, that is going to hold true regard, you know, it does, it's a, that's always going to hold true for me. I think where I land on that, on one of those sides of that sort of, I don't want to dichotomize it, but in that dichotomy of individual autonomy and responsibility to a community, I think that's where we, where the, that context becomes more important because I think that, you know, this is a, you know, I don't want to make assumptions about entire groups of people, but I think for a senior in IB, there is a there's a tendency for there to be some of that internalization into a system that they've benefited from because they know how to follow directions, right? And so I want to shake that up a little bit, right? And I want to, I want them to then more focus on, well, what is your impact on the community? When you leave and you're working in a small group and you leave to go to the bathroom, why are you asking me? That it doesn't impact me because I'm not relying upon you in that group. You know, and I, I so I want to just get them to think about that, like actual, the real impact in the world. Like you're getting up and using the bathroom impacts, you know, if we're in the whole class instruction, and you get up and walk in the front of the room. Yeah. Now I can understand why you invite me into that conversation. Do you, would it be okay? Would you mind if I'm going to step out for a second? But I think that like, um, I think that second component, like really understanding impact on community is where I, I, you know, like understanding, understanding that. And so I, what I guess changes in the post pandemic, like what I think I would want to echo the most is like, can you like uh, literally, can you go to the bathroom and just absolutely make a, an entire mess? Sure. I, I mean, I would say, of course you can, hundred percent you can. And now where we're going to land is how does that choice impact other folks? And I want, I would hope that there's, I, you know, I would love if we could build a structure around the transparency. You know, I overheard someone um, gave me a really good example in talking about the classroom. We were talking about our classroom and she responded with a personal anecdote. She said that, oh, you know, when she was, I forget what age she was, um, let's say freshman or sophomore, they, they broke into the classroom because they had keys because her parent was like, had some access to the school and it was the old days of the chalkboard and her and her friends covered the entire chalkboard for, you know, like with the chalk <laughs> and just yeah. covered the whole thing. <laughs> A chalky mess. Yeah. Yeah. And the next day came in and her teacher it was very clear, had seen it obviously before school, but did not do anything about it until class started. And then when class started, she sat there and she cleaned it meticulously, laboriously ah. for however long it took. And of course, at first there were some, you know, chuckles and some, you know. But they could see the impacts. Yeah. 
and they saw that impact. And she said, she, you know, she's like, that stayed with me forever. Um, and I think that those are the two things. Yes, individual autonomy and yes, impact on community. And, and it has to be both of those. So that student saying that I'm grateful to hear that. And I think that that feedback is uh, that that's where it's landing is important. Um, I think that I try and reinforce that consistently, like, let's just like, I, you know, it just happens. It happens literally every day. You know, can I go to the bathroom? Have you checked in with your small group members? Like, I just want to push it back on them. Like yeah. just that understanding, like real world implications. And there's a, there's, that's there all the time. Yeah. Know? And they're, I mean, they're shifting. They're trying to be in a different cultural environment in your class, right? Like that's yeah. something that's not being reinforced every single period throughout the day. So they've got to navigate like, well, I have to ask this teacher. This right. one wants me to ask my group. This totally. one, I grab the clipboard and sign out. Like totally. I all know. these different policies and expectations. Yeah. It must be really hard. I empathize a hundred percent with that. And I also understand, like, I, you know, I don't know, I wrestle, I struggle with that. Like, where do we, where, like, where does that kind of curriculum, how does it function within the larger context? And I, you know, I think that that's, yeah, that's a larger conversation. It largely functions because you could, you know, if the norms were something different than if the whole thing was about critical literacy and like making us aware of like uh, inherited and established norms, if you shift those norms then the work would still be the same, but we'd be sort of unsurfacing new norms. But so, so that curriculum only functions because it's like a counter argument. It's a counterpoint to the narr those narratives and those things that are happening elsewhere. But is it probably tricky you know, to navigate as a young person who's like, no, I'm following the rules and I'm good at that and <laughs> elsewhere. And then here we have this, you know, sort of turned on its head. I, you know, I, I definitely have empathy and that's why I try and lead with the compassion and love of like, and support, not being like, why are you asking me? I mean, you know, but definitely counteract your shift of power. Yeah. Right. right exactly. So then, I mean, what do you do if a student's not considering the impact of their group? That, so then that's an opportunity for me to have one-on-one -on -one conversation. And oftentimes those have to take place outside of the classroom, um, not during the class, but I mean, outside of class time, because I do, those are the conversations that are really, really important. And it is a conversation. It's not a quote, like teachable moment. You know, I want there to be reflection and I want there to be a space to do that. And to know that, like, to just, to, to, yeah, to, yeah, once again, it comes back to a consciousness, like, here's what I usually phrase it in, here's what I observed, here's how I felt, and here's what I'm connecting is what did it, you know, when you got up and, uh, you know, I don't know, you got up and started texting, you know, somebody, and we were in the middle of talking, or we were in the middle of, you know, sharing an experience that felt hurtful to me because I feel like you didn't see the other humans in this, in this space, you know? And I know that I try to acknowledge that that is a totally subjective interpretation, but that's what it's bringing up for me. And I can't speak for everyone else's experience in the room, but that, you know, 
um, that's where it landed with me. And, and that's the impact that it had, you know, and maybe, you know, there's always more context to it that I'm not aware of, which then shifts my experience about how I felt in that moment. And then I have to be accountable in that too. Like, okay, you're right. I was really reducing it down to you did this. And then I felt this way, you know? Um, so I, I, it needs to be, and I do feel like I need to frame it as a genuine discussion, not just telling them what happened and here's what's going to happen moving forward. Um, which usually requires more, requires more space and time than is a lot, you know, is allotted in the, for like a little one-off conversation during class. So absolutely. But that's great advice. And so my last question for you is what's the best mic dropping teacher advice that's ever been given to you? I think it goes back to something I said earlier in the podcast is that um, in the discussion is that I think something that's been taught to me, told to me, and something that I learned uh, is that pretend that the grades don't exist. There are no, there's, there are no grades. And if we get rid and if we get rid of those, even if just like the illusion that we don't know, right. (laughs) Even if we didn't have, even if we just create illusion that they don't exist, I think it puts me in a mindset and I hope it invites others to get into the mindset of, well, then how are we valuing these young people's time uh, when they don't really have an authentic choice to be here or not? And I can't assume that they share the exact same values that I do. And, uh, and how do I make this time meaningful that we get to share together? So getting rid of grades, at least in my mind, uh, <laughs> helps put me in that, that mindset. Awesome. Thank you for that. That's great advice. It's hard to do, but I know I feel the same and I'm trying to do a lot of different things around grading and and changing my own mindsets too. So thank you for affirming that. And thank you for your time and, and offering to be on the podcast today. It was great talking to you. Stacey, I want to say something on record. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for that. You choosing to take this time to create this. I know life is crazy for all of us, but I know, you know, each of our situations are unique. You with your family and the little ones, and not to mention all that you do here at school to take this on. I'm grateful for you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do something like this. I think it's so, so wonderful. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. More resources can be found on the website, bit.ly backslash cap mic drop. If you look under show notes, look up Dan Connolly's episode number three, and there will be resources there to help you uh, with some tools to give students voice and try to implement some of these strategies that Dan talked about today. As always, subscribe to the podcast and shoot me an email or leave a voice message on Anchor if you have something to add. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Next week, we will hear Marty Lopez Schmidt drop the mic about the IB program. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.